Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today I've got with me uh, Larry Smith, Director of Photography. Larry Smith. Hello, Larry. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Now, I'm not going to name all your films. I'll just, I'll just name some of them of the ones I really love. Films you've been Director of Photography on that, that I love a lot are Calvary and The Guard, directed by uh, John Michael McDonough. Uh, Only God Forgives, Bronson and Fear X. I mean, Winding Refn is an absolute hero of mine. And then Kubrick's uh, Eyes Wide Shut. But obviously, your, your, for those people that know your name, your, your career, I guess, started out in the 70s working on Barry Lyndon in uh, 75. So it feels like no introduction needed, but with those kind of names, I just thought I'd, I'd better throw out people that, that, that aren't, don't have their film history books to hand. Well, pleasure to be here. Nice to talk to you and your audience. Can you, can you differentiate? The job of the director, from and, and then and then how you would describe the role of the the director of photography on a feature film. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course, it's uh, changed dramatically uh, since I first came into the business, but because of you know the way films are made now, with much more <clears throat> input or control from the director than was normal when I first came in. Normally, you know, in the certainly in you know the sixties and seventies. The role of the director of photography was all-encompassing in terms of the look and the camera movement, and the, you know, and some input into the set design. Um, and you had really carte blanche to do what you wanted, and you invariably you weren't interfered with. Uh, well, certainly a, a bigger name director of photographers weren't interfered with. You know, directors directed, uh, director of photographers. Uh, did the lighting and the camera, etc. Production designers design. That's changed dramatically now. Whereas um, most directors want to be involved in every um, uh, aspect of uh, of the filmmaking process, including sometimes the the, the lighting and shot selection, etc., etc. So the variation is um, nowadays. Obviously, the directors is the overall sort of head of department, you know, of a, of a movie in the sense that, you know, he has to work with the actors, he, he has to approve the sets, he, he likes to, in some cases, approve the lighting, what you're going to do, costume, makeup, etc. whereas the direct photography is normally um, involved in, you know, lighting the set, the camera movement, the choice of lenses, and to some extent uh, involved in where you should certain locations at what time of day where the sun is etc etc is that an evolution in terms of the the, the the emphasis on on the greater involvement with the director is that is that like the last 20 years or is that yeah I would say so it ca I mean I don't really know where it came from certainly a lot of um, directors um, that came out of commercials uh, advertising that got into film kind of tended to work that way anyway so there might be a little bit of link there um, but I think it is it is partly evolution um, good, bad or indifferent I'm not really sure you know I think uh, I think sometimes um, uh, it, 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 you know it's hard enough to make movies today as it is and I think you know um, uh, if, if, if each other department has more autonomy in what they do I, I kind of feel that's better but it's not necessarily the way it is with some people it's, this is not across the board it's, it's just that is the trend I guess it's a collaborative medium isn't it and 
and but also a film set is probably the closest working environment to the army as well, with it being hierarchical as well. Uh, exactly that, yeah. It is a collaboration. Um, and, of course, um, you have to have that level of collaboration. It, uh, it's, I guess it's where collaboration becomes interference, is <laughs> where the line gets crossed, you know? Yeah, yeah. You're, you, you, in some ways, you, you're the expert, and that's why you're there. Exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly that, yeah. But, you know, it is, as I say, it, I'm quite lucky. I think I've been quite lucky you know, with most of the people I work with. Um, I've always had that freedom to, um, you know, make the decisions I felt were right. So I, I'm one of the ones that can't really complain about the new the new wave of filmmakers. In terms of when you, when you, when you started, am I right in thinking you, you, you came from an um, exhibition lighting background? Is that right? Is that where you... Ba basically, yes. I was working in... Um, uh, you know, I, I, I did an apprenticeship as an electrician, in actual fact, and then and then um, I um, I didn't really like that. I mean, I, I liked it, but I didn't like the, the, that, that kind of work. I didn't like, you know, the, I didn't like the cold weather in particular. None of us like that. None of us like that. No, exactly. And, cold. and so I kind of I, I kind of fell into exhibition lighting, which was. I guess the forerunner to advertising in a way when you think when you think when I think back now because advertising wasn't really there, there was no real advertising as such at that period of, uh, of time and I kind of fell into it and I thought wow this is an amazing world where you get because it was quite glamorous you know you, you you know there was in those days they used to use lots of um, models almost for anything for, for you know for handing out a cup of coffee to you know, to laying on the bonnet of a car, you know, and the motor show, it says, or the ideal home exhibition. And I thought this was wonderful. I, I'd never quite seen anything like this before. And, of course, I had the extra element of being able to travel, which I hadn't really done, as a, you know, uh, up until that time. So I, I found this, like, a really interesting way. It paid very well. You built things up very quickly, then you took them down. It wasn't a, a forever job, you know, uh, which made it more interesting, you know, that whole variety thing. Um, so so yeah, that's basically where I kind of came from, and then, and then in a way, fell into you know film lighting uh, as a link to that. Was the Barry Lyndon thing where you first came into it, or has you already had tastes? No, 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 no. I was into. I was in in before that. I mean, basically, what happened was that um, years ago, uh, the um, the electrical trade union, I think, as it was in it was the ETU, I think it was called, had a branch of uh, had a film branch at Highbury Place in in London, and um, because you were in that union, you were able to go to that branch and they, you could lodge a ticket. Um, to get into the film industry, and, and every now and again, you know, they had big call. In those days, of course, all there was no such thing as four wheel studios. All the studios, like Shepperton, MGM's, EMI, as it then was, or ABPC, as it then was, rather, uh, Pinewood, were all had made their own films. You know, they were all very, very busy in terms of the amount of films that the British film industry turned out at that time, much more then than we do now. And they, of course, had people permanently employed there, you know, like, you know, gaffers and even DOPs, camera operators, you know, across the board, and employed a huge amount of people. But then every now and again, they'd get sort of bigger films and then they would need more people. And um, I kind of got in that way. I got a call out one summer um, to... Um, to go to do a film at Shepparton 
called the, called the best house in London with Warren Mitchell. Uh, remember Warren Mitchell from? I do indeed. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, I got called out with forty other electricians. Um, and went to Shepparton. That was my first real taste uh, of, of the business. And we sat around because they had the films were starting up and they just wanted to have the labour force there. And I sat around for like a week, didn't really do anything. We were sat in a canteen drinking tea for a week. Um, but I used to walk onto the sets and walk up onto into the, the gantry and so I could have a better view to just to get a, a, a sort of an idea of what it was, you know, how things worked. And um, so I did, I, I, I worked there at Sheldon, but it wasn't very busy. I, I found it not very interesting if I'm, I wasn't stimulated by that. So I decided not to stay at Sheldon and I went back uh, to exhibition lighting. And then a little while later, and I can't, I don't know how long later, maybe it was about a year later, I think there was a sort of a very small lighting company that started up with, people that were with a background in exhibition called Lee Lighting, which you probably heard of with two brothers, John and Benny Lee. And they they were sort of growing. At that time, the studios were beginning to, you know, shed the four-wall thing. MGM's had, had, had closed. And um, advertising was in its infancy. Um, and it was, there, was just a, there was just an opening there for... A young company to come in, which 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 they were. They were they were one of our, one or two other small companies at that time, and they drew their labour force from people in the exhibitions and also people that lived in a certain part of London. They were from West London, Notting Hill, whereas where I was from originally, and uh, that was the conduit, if you like, to get into the mainstream um, film lighting. Uh, which 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 I did, and they had, and they grew enormously over a very short period of time. So I worked for them for a short period of time, but then I kind of decided to be uh, to go for, to be freelance. I like the whole freelance thing, um, you know, where you can work in a particular area for a certain amount of time, then take some time off, you know, that whole variety thing, uh, which is what I did. And it was about that time when I was freelance that uh, Barry Lyndon had started. So I went on to Barry Lyndon as a as a, as a freelance, just literally for all, to do two weeks' work, and a year and a half later, I was still there. No, that's quite an amazing story. That is, <laughs> you go there for a week, two weeks, and find you're still on the roll. Eighteen a payroll, eighteen months later. Yeah, and it, and it did extend beyond that. To be absolutely honest, I mean, it extended more or less. You know, uh, right the way through to The Shining, you know, because I was, you know, once I got to know um, um, Kubrick, Kubrick, he, you know, I got on very well with him. And he used to like to have me around, you know, to do things and collaborate on potential things that were coming up. I loved your uh, your analogy of referring to dealing with Kubrick as a, as like playing a, t a tennis pro. Uh, <laughs> if you're quick enough to hit the ball back, he'll play with you. But if you're not... Absolutely. And um, one of the things that um, Stanley always used to like to do after a film, after one of his movies, you know, the in-between periods where he was at his most relaxed and easygoing and was, you know, it's like you, you and I talking now, really. Um, um, he would, we would analyse the, the, the people that he didn't think did very well and the people that that he that did well, you know, that he thought were good. And quite often, because of that very fact where he would sometimes serve an ace, 
the person at the other end never really had a chance to get their racket on it and therefore he didn't give them the opportunity to see how good they were sometimes because working around Stanley a lot of people went got went to jelly because he was such a you know a, a, a smart intellectual man and you know sometimes he would ask very very searching questions you know straight off the bat you know and sometimes when you're not prepared for that even if you're super smart yourself you give a, a bad answer you know what I mean it's like going to an interview you know you come out of an interview you've done really badly purely because for whatever reason, you know, you just never answered this question and then you answer the next one badly and then you lost confidence, you know what I mean? And and Stanley used to take that as a weakness and, 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 and it wasn't always a weakness and it isn't, as you well know, always a weakness. Uh, sometimes you, you can do a bad interview, you know, uh, it doesn't make you bad at what you do uh, necessarily. You weren't that aware of, of Kubrick, the kind of master visionary director. You knew he was a filmmaker, didn't you? But... You weren't you you weren't that jelly legged newbie on set, were you? That was kind. Of... No, and and basically, I I didn't really know who he was. I mean, I knew he was an American film director, and um, and he clearly had a presence. When I first met him, you know, the, the, when he came onto the set down at Wilton House in um, in Salisbury, um, I, I clearly you you kind of there's a, some people have an aura, and he's not a man that seeks that. He ne- he wasn't a man that ever seek you know sought that. Uh, he just had it, you know. You could just see that the people around him were, you know, very respectful of him. Because he wasn't, he wasn't a shouter, was he, or anything like that? No, certainly not. No, he could get upset, but no, he wasn't a screamer and a shouter like other directors I can mention. Um, but I could see, but I, but I didn't. I thought, well, I'm only here for two weeks. I don't need to know too much about. This guy it was two weeks' work to me. I, it wasn't more than that, you know. And because, as I say, I didn't really. I really hadn't sort of put him on any kind of scale as to where he was, you know. I, it, 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 I you know, it was like meeting anyone. You just, oh, how, oh, you do that? Oh, great, uh, fine. And you, you just do your job and you move on. It's just that, you know, two weeks that then got extended to four weeks. That, by the way, we weren't anywhere near shooting at this stage. We were just, you know, getting sets ready and testing and doing things like this. This is which is why, you know, it took us. Uh, a while to even get into the set mode and um so by the time i kind of really kind of got to know him to speak to him um it was probably you know a, a, a few months down the line now you know it's probably about three or four months into it when we were just beginning to shoot start shooting and we're still going out doing other tests I mean, famously on that film, there was the the use of the um the nasa lenses for filming the candlelight Did you, were you involved with that testing Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah, because we we all as a group had to, you know, well the, the the electrical side certainly had to, you know, provide. Even though you know there was candlelight, there were there were other sort of bounce lights. So we had our uh, area of that that was uh, that we 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 obviously did test on because that's the one thing that Stanley was very strong about. He 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 was a man that never liked surprises. He always wanted to know, you know, what what he was going to get. Um, you know, once he started uh, shooting. So uh, we used to tense, uh, test that extensively. Is it that kind of work process you went through and what you were trying to achieve? Is that something that influenced you as someone? And I think I read somewhere you're saying you like to go for the most natural look you can get, as it were. Is, is, that, is, that, is that influenced by that experience or is it? Stanley and I are really, you know, as 
not as not as people, but as uh, in terms of our our work process, our workflow, we're very very different. I'm very spontaneous, and he is very. He, you mean he could have been a scientist. He could. He likes to you know, look in every corner, look under every stone and then come back and look again. The, the fear of missing something uh, to Stanley was something that drove him. Whereas I, I, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm not someone, let's see what we get, you know. So it's quite strange, really, that we had this long relation because we were very, very different in our approach um, to filmmaking. But what I what I take and what I took away from working with Stanley was his understanding of film process. And by that, I mean, for example, on Barry Lyndon, I can't remember what the film stock we were using then. It would have probably been not much faster than 50 ASA, may have been 100. The lenses were so much slower then than, than, than they are today. So, you know, you obviously needed uh, a, a lot more lights and lots more time, uh, you know, that equated to time, which equates to money, you know. Um, by the time we had got from Barry Lyndon to The Shining, for example, we had moved to 500 or 400 ASA film, which is a huge jump. Also in that time, we'd had, you know, we'd had, had uh, HMIs were like in their infancy when we were doing Barry Lyndon. We didn't use HMIs. We used, you know, Brutes, Art Lights and, you know, and, and t mostly tungsten. But in that period, HMIs had come up um, and were replacing the uh, more conventional lights like Brutes. I, I can't remember what the biggest one that was around, probably a, something like maybe a 12 kilowatt HMI. Stanley immediately... What Stanley immediately read into that was, hang on, we've suddenly got these lights that are bigger and more powerful. We've suddenly got film stock, which is, you know, two or three times faster than film stock. We've got lenses that can now shoot at 1314, whereas probably on Barry Lyndon, you know, the lenses we were using were probably, you know, two eight lenses. You know, I can't remember for sure. So it's a massive. And immediately he, because he was a producer director, yeah. immediately equated that, what that meant in real terms of, of how you can manipulate film in terms of you need less lights, you need less people, it's quicker, etc., etc. You know, now he, it always staggered him that, lights were getting bigger, film stock was getting faster, lenses were getting faster, but people were using bigger lights and more lights, and he never understood that. And I got that very quickly, what he was talking about, you know. And that's really where I took on from what I learned working with with him. That and obviously other things like, you know, how to use locations and um, how to get the best out of locations for the best money, etc. I guess the best way to sort of see illustrate that is if you see the kind of TV productions of the eighties, it's like everything's it's like everything's under a fluorescent light. It's that bra there's no there's no black, is there, on TV in the eighties? No, 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 no. Well he he he, t he told a very interesting story was when he when he when he did Spartacus or when he took over on Spartacus, I should say, he was a just a you know a paid hand basically, um, and he used to sit in a chair um, and see this beautiful backlit sunlight on you know whatever scene he was shooting, and and of course he had a, a, a DOP imposed on him by the you know by the studio, um, and he used to sit and watch hours. You should say hours. They bring a big truck of lights in. 
uh, arc lights and fill in all that beautiful shadow area that had been created by this beautiful backlight. And he just used to shake his head in despair that, that, that they'd never got how to use light. This is this, this was a Hollywood cameraman at that time. Um, you know, which is, which is, again, it's how you use natural light. You know, it's how, you know, um, you know, it, it, it's that high key look that Hollywood was about uh, rather than, for example, you know, the modern, more of a modern look, like, you know, like the, the, the you know, the Tony Scott, Ridley Scott look, you know, for want of a better analysis of people that sort of were, were working in that way. Um, but people were still coming in using lots of fill and, you know, killing all of the contrast, you know. And it's interesting because obviously when we when we think about sort of great paintings and, and early photography, it was it was it was all about the, the perfect picture is all about how you see it, isn't it? As opposed to being able to see everything, which I think is a kind of it, it's 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 a weird schizophrenia sometimes in film, isn't it? You mentioned uh, great painters and great photographers. If you, you know, you can go back and look at yeah, look at some of the great photographers. I mean, we we still have one or two of the real. Oh, I mean, Wolfgang Strzycki. I'll give you an example. He's over a hundred now. You look at the stuff he was doing in the twenties and the thirties. He's still photography. The clarity. It's just incredible, you know, given what they were working with then. But, you know, it's, it's again, it's manipulation. It's people understanding, you know, what you can get, you know, on a given day in a given light level, et cetera, et cetera. And, again, if you go back to painters, great painters, if you think about how they worked, if you think about, you know, the tools that they would use use over and above the brushes and the, and, and the, the paints and, 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 the, and the easel, for example, it was – they would invariably work by daylight next to a window because that was their only source of light. Okay, so therefore the window light was the natural source of light. If it was night light, they would be working with candles. You know, we do exactly the same same thing today, only we work by daylight, but we would punch a light through the window to, to, to essentiate the daylight. And instead of candlelight, we'd be using practical lights. And to me, what's changed? I don't see what's changed. What has, nothing's changed. Don't we just use more modern techniques to get the same results that great painters work by? Fast forward. I mean, this is sort of, I'm, I'm leaping over quite a lot here when we, to get to, to Eyes Wide Shut. Um, where you are his director of photography, you are Stanley Kubrick's director of photography on that film. Now, it will amaze listeners who don't know that you, when, when asked originally, you said, can I sleep on it? Well, because I'd, I'd, I had worked for literally more or less constantly 13 years with Stanley up until The Shining and, and also as sort of a kind of an unpaid advisor on um, Full Metal Jacket. It, after the first 13 years, you know, and I go back to what I said at the, the beginning of this podcast about variety of work and being able to move around it was like a regular job to me and I, I I never wanted to do a regular job for that long as much as working with Stanley was probably the most interesting time of my life there is a point where you know after 13 years you, you need to do something else you need to branch out and I and I decided at that time um, to um, form my own lighting company um, which I'd already done before um, before The Shining. In fact, I, I wasn't actually going to work on The Shining. I was only going to set it up, and then I was going to jump off of it because I, I had already started my own lighting company. I already had a couple of, you know, young DOPs that I was working with, and I was very excited by that. But, you know, Stanley's a very hard man to leave 
you know when he you know when he doesn't want you to go and you know and and also that loyalty thing kicks in with me um that you know i i felt that i might be betraying him even at the expense of myself you know so a lot of that a lot of soul searching went on um but after after um the show and so i did the show and after showing it i you know i did, there was no way i was going to do full metal jacket um, because by this time I had established a small lighting company that was growing in advertising. Um, and, um, I, you know, I'd bought a small, uh, um, building. Oh, uh, um, I did, well, I did a film called Give My Regards to Broad Street with, that with, and that was, that was really what launched my lighting company. Um, and that, that enabled me to, you know, buy more equipment. And then I bought a small building in King's Cross and then had a little studio to the side. And so I, that was what I was developing. Um, so I did that for literally an, until just after Eyes Wide Shut, I had this company. And, um, but in, 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 in between building this company up, I got in, I just, I, I, I suddenly started to like commercials. I, I got, I got offered to like commercials, which is what I did. And I was doing that, you know, very successfully during that period up until just prior to being asked to go on Eyes Wide Shut. And I was very happy doing that. You know, I was making good money. I was in charge of my own destiny. And I knew to go back to work with Stanley would be body and soul again for, However long it, well, I knew it would be wouldn't be less than a year. I knew I wouldn't get any peace, you know, in that sense, you know, because when you when you work with Stanley, you know, he wants to talk to you, uh, uh, you know, uh, as often as he requires that, and uh, that's not always convenient when you're, you know, when you've got a life, <laughs> you know. So it, it it wasn't it wasn't like I was coming into it as a fresh faced person, never worked with Stanley before, and would would have done it just for the honour of doing it. I was coming in from a different angle. I was coming in from a, a you know, reasonably, I would say, successful you know, uh, a commercial career uh, as, a, as a DOP. And um, I didn't really, I didn't feel that I wanted to give that up. That was really the reason why I needed to think about it. Um, uh, I, I also knew that he had had people that, that, uh, that wrote to him, big name cinematographers from all around the globe that wanted to work on that film for no pay. Really? Yeah, Absolutely. And people did that. People had that. So many people wanted to work with Kubrick. It, it, actors, production designers, you name it. Just that they would do it for no pay. What do you think it was about wanting to work with him? Was was a lot of it just perception, or was it was much of it? They knew they'd gain something by working with him. Well, people that already had a name wouldn't gain any anything from it because they already had a name. So I don't know, you know, and, and clearly money wouldn't have come into it if they'd. You know, but I think it was they either, you know, uh, you know, idolised him as a filmmaker, which a lot of people, as you well know, do. Is you know, he's. Um, I mean, I think if if you go into, and I know there's less of them around now, the big DVD stores that you get in in LA, and you go and you look at all of the big name directors that, that are up there have got their films. The section under Sandy Kubrick is probably twice as big as any other director, you know. So that gives you some idea of, you know, in what esteem he's held, you know, in particularly in America and, 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 and elsewhere. So it doesn't really surprise me that people do that. I mean, I know for a fact that I was speaking to Jack Nicholson on The Shining and um, 
and uh, we were just just talking uh, very early days when he came onto it, and I said, oh, you know. Uh, who, who, by the way, was absolutely the perfect person for that role. But he had got his agent. Jack Nicholson, I think, you know, just got his second Oscar, maybe, at that time. So he was probably number one in the world at that time in terms of male, male, uh, male actors. And uh, But he got his agent to call Stanley to see if there was a chance to do that film. That, you know, that gives you some idea. Uh, you know, if someone like Jack Nicholson wanted to work with Stanley... Far be it from anyone, you know, a cinematographer or whoever that would get the opportunity. You can understand why why it was that they would want to do that. So, you know, just to jump back to your question now. So, so you know, when you ask me, um, I hadn't seen him for a number of years. I had seen him about a year before. He asked me, you know, what I didn't know is he had been following my career. This is what I didn't know at this time. Okay. Um, so um, he called me up to, to the house. He called me up one day. I was in my studio in London. He said, how are you? And it's very interesting. I hadn't spoken to Stanley for, I can't remember how many years. It was nine or ten years, maybe, um, which is a long time not to speak to Stanley, you know. Know, even if you're not working with him, because he would always call up for some reason. It could be some trivial matter. Hmm. You know, he's got some people working in his house and they're not doing this. And what would you give him? Say, well, this is what they should be doing, and blah blah blah. You know. So you know. So he called me up and said, um, "What new lights are around?" So I said, and so and I, I used the the, um, the Dido lights a lot. They were a very small focus light, which I really like. And he always liked small lights, Stanley. You know, low lights and things like that. I said, well, I've got the, these lights. I said, I think you'd probably like them. I said, I think you know, next time you do something, they might be you know something that you'd really like. He said, can you bring some up to the house and show me? And I said, yeah, sure. So I said, this was like in the morning. This was like about uh, uh, ten in the morning. And we had this, by the time we'd got round to talking about lights, we'd already had a three-hour conversation on the telephone that went, like, five minutes because we were talking about films and talking about this and that. And, you know, he's a very engaging person to talk to on the telephone, and he can talk about anything and everything, and, and we did on this morning. So the phone call was just about, can you, can you bring some up at the house? I said, yeah, sure. So he said, what time will you be here? And I said, Stanley, I can't come now. <laughs> I'd already, waste, I'd already wasted, wasted three hours that morning of stuff I could not waste it, but, you know, things I could have been doing. And, 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 and I, he said, well, why not? I said, I'm just going to the gym. And he went really quiet and he went, you're going to the gym? Why would you go to the gym? He couldn't understand that. Why would I go to the gym now? And I said, well, because I go every, you know, every day or every couple of days and I've got my shorts on and I'm, I was going to go before you called me this morning. He said, well, can't you go tomorrow? I said, yeah, I can, but I'm going to miss out. He said, well, okay, go to the gym. What time can you get here? So I said, I'll come up later on this afternoon. <laughs> so I went, I put two cases of these small Dido lights. Um, so I think some people call them Dados. I call them Dados. But um, I put them in my car and went up to see him. And um, and um, we went in, in 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 his kitchen. We had some coffee and we talked about everything but these lights. And then it's now about seven in the evening, seven or eight in the evening, you know. And uh, so I said, Danny, do you want to see these lights or not? He went, oh yeah, yeah, let's go over the stable, stable block. We had this stable. So I put some up and showed him what they did. He said, yeah, R wasn't interested at all. Kind of was interested, but wasn't interested. And I got in my car and um, and went home. And the next day he called me again. He said, oh, thanks for bringing those up, and it was really great. And 
you know, let's talk some more. So that was the end of it. I, I was found myself at Pinewood Studios. He used to use a continuity lady called June Randell, who sadly passed away uh, sometime last year. Are you sensing the subtext here at all? Or are you just thinking he's bit? No, no. I, I'm just telling, you know, this is, uh, you know, I, I hadn't seen June since The Shining, I don't think. I'm walking past one of the studios at Pinewood. She calls me over. Larry, 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 come over, come on. You're doing... It wasn't Eyes Wide Shut. It was the film before that, which I think was called The Valici Papers, that he put up. He said, you're, you're doing Stanley's film, The Valici Papers. I went, no, no, I'm not. I've never heard, I've never heard of that film. She said, yeah, you are. I know you are. So I said, June, let me tell you, I'm not. What happened after that was he shelved The Valici Papers because it was a very similar movie to Schindler's List. And he had spent about $6 million on it, researching it and whatever, but he decided to shelve it. And then he picked up Eyes Wide Shut again, which he had had, for, as you know, the Somerville novel for many, many years. And, uh, you know, he always wanted to make it. Um, and um, he got in pr production um, for that. And so then, you know, a year or so later, I get the call, would you come up to the house again? Can I drive you to this location and blah, 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 blah. And we talked about, you know, how to light the exterior uh, of um, of the mass ball. Um, and I said, well, I'd do this. I'd put this big light back there, et cetera, et cetera. He went, mm, interesting. He was, he was driving, by the way. We drove back to the house. We had some, spent another few hours just talking and blah, blah, blah. And didn't mention anything about Eyes Wide Shut, just how would I like that? I'd go away. About two weeks later, I get another phone call. Um, so, what do you think? What do I think about what? <laughs> what do you think about the film? What film, Stanley? Because at this stage, he hadn't told me the name of it. He hadn't told me, you know, he assumed that I knew. And in actual fact, I didn't. He said, well, the film, Eyes Wide Shut. Do you want to do it? I said, and then I said, no, no. But, uh, sorry, sorry. Prior to that, he, he, Yan had he'd got Yan, his producer, his brother-in-law, to ask me, and I said to Yan, Yan, I can't tell you now. I need a couple of weeks. I need to sleep on it. I need a couple of weeks, you know, because I knew what it would be like. Then Yan called me again and said, Sandy doesn't understand. Why are you not, you know, why are you not talking? Why are you not going to do this film? And I said, Well, because you know. I'm just not sure. Then Stanley called me, so he said, Larry, do you want to do it or not? And I said, well, are you asking me to do it? Are you personally asking me to do it, Stanley? And this may sound really strange, this conversation that you and I are having now, but this is exactly how it happened, you know. And I said, he said, well, do you want to do it? I said, oh, well, are you asking me? And it was a bit like that. It was a bit, it was a bit of a standoff. I said, okay, I'll, tell you, I'll let you know tomorrow, Stanley, which is kind of basically what I did. And in the end, of course, the rest is consigned to history. Now I did it. You know. I mean, at that moment, was you ever going to say no? That it was again. I think so. I think it was a bit like the Shining thing. You know, it was a bit. It was only the fact that he had personally asked me, you know, to do it, as opposed to asking Yan, you know, who was it was obviously getting a hard time from Stanley because I, he hadn't got the answer from me. But it's the very fact that when Stanley gets on the phone and he talks to you about someone, and he, you know, and he said to me, he said to me, Larry, do you, you realise this? What this would do to your career? And and because I'd always had this relationship with Stanley, I said, Stanley, I've got a career. 
you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, if I do this film, the only reason I will do it is because you personally have asked me as, you know, if you like, as a friend, as opposed to I had to go for an agent and had to have an interview or etc. And that's the meaning. That is the, the, the power of Sandy Kubrick, if you like, to get to get somebody on board one of his products. Because he knew, he, he knew by talking to me that I wasn't anywhere near 100% sure that I wanted to do it. And he knew that. And, and, but with Stanley, he respected that. You know, he respected the fact that I didn't just say yes for the sake of doing a film and getting the credit working with Stanley Kubrick. How did you discuss the working relationship with you as his, now his director of photography for the first time? I mean, no, you've worked in that capacity. But this is now officially you are. How did because obviously you want to do your best work. You just don't want you. You don't want to be just on set doing the lighting for Stanley Kubrick, do you? Exactly. And th and there was another part of the dilemma, be because if you look back to two thousand and one, two thousand and one, Jeffrey Unsworth, fantastic cinematographer, obviously had a hard time on that with Stanley. That's the last time that Stanley used, if you like, an already established director of photography. Um, when he did Clockwork Orange, um, he used John, Al John Alcock, another fantastic cinematographer. But he used John, because John was his focus puller on <coughs> on uh, 2001, and John did extra photography. And Stanley knew with John he had someone he could work with, he could mould, he could you know manipulate, if you like. And therefore, John did uh, Clockwork Orange, obviously under the wing of Stanley, and obviously would have to do things that Stanley wanted to be done. Then he went away from um, um, Clockwork Orange and became a cinematographer in, in his own right, and then obviously came back, excuse me, and did um, Barry Lyndon. Again, working always. I mean, when you work with Stanley, you work with him, but you work for him. And if Stanley wants to do something, you do it. That's the bottom line. So John was happy to go along with that, you know, and he did Barry Lyndon. I was surprised that he came back to do The Shining because he was very established cinematographer by that time. But you, you see, my point is, he, you know, he started as the focus puller, you know, under the wing of Stanley, okay? Then after The Shining, the same thing happened to Doug Milson. Doug did extra photography on The Shining after John left and then was brought on under Stanley's wing to do Full Metal Jacket. A great opportunity. You know, it's what John did. It's what Doug did. I was coming from a different angle. I was already a successful commercial cinematographer at that stage and was very making good money and was very content with my life. And I didn't want to give that up. And I knew I would have to give that up. You know, um, so I talked with Stanley, you know, about that. And he said, Larry, have what camera do you want? You're the DOP. Do what you want. But I knew that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> you know, I knew that wouldn't be the case. And, and of course, it wasn't the case. Yeah, I did have a, an input. And I did used to argue my corner on, on using certain techniques. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but we force developed the whole of that movie. Yeah, you, was it two points? Or two, two, two stops. And I would fought with him every day about that because, you know, with modern film stocks and especially someone who knew about film like Stanley did, um, I never thought that that was necessary. And it's not a science, you know, two or three seconds in the bath a bit longer or two or three seconds in the bath uh, too short, you get a different 
you know, you get a different look. And, um, you know, and I knew that would be, a, you know, potentially a problem. And we did have, you know, problems with that sort of going along. Not, not too many, to be fair, but we had it. So I thought with him about that. And I would, you know, you know, when, you know we would heavily discuss, shall I say, you know, uh, aspects of it. And But, you know, I, I, I was strong about that I didn't you know I felt very strongly about you know that we we shouldn't be doing that we should be doing this but you know ultimately um you know there's only ever going to be one winner in a, in in those kind of discussions so you know it's about having the right to, to to try to change his mind what would be your advice for the budding DOP cinematographer to to make that work even when you like you say sometimes only one person could be right how do you manage that relationship to make it best for you? Well, I think it's it depends on, you know, individuals' personality. Some people can are very, very good at, you know, at, at being able to, you know, stay in a, a in a hostile environment even though they're not in they're not enjoying it, you know. Um and other people have a, a have a lesser threshold and they say, you know what? I, I can't agree. I don't want to be unhappy. I don't want to fall out with you. Therefore, I'm going to leave. So some, D, some DOPs leave. Some DOPs just knuckle down and have a horrendous time, but just get the project done. Just just finish it, you know. And it really de depends on the personality. I think I'm of the middle, too. I'm one of those ones that, you know, try to be professional enough to stay on a project, even though you're not enjoying it and you're not getting the results that you that, that you want but to try and influence it in a different way luckily to me that that doesn't that hasn't happened very often and I've more often than not been able to um express myself um with the way I work so so I think it's up to individuals how they deal with it as i say their personality will drive a lot of it you know if they've got a really temperate uh, a personality, they're more likely to be able to work with across the board with all kinds of directors, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, if you're a bit more volatile, then I think you have to sort of choose the directors very carefully that you work with. Mm. Now, I, I want to ask you a question that's come from a, a friend of mine, uh, John Baker, a director, who, who, who had a specific question about uh, Eyes Wide Shut. His favourite movie scene ever is the ritual scene in Eyes Wide Shut. And he said, is it, is it true that, that, that 25 minutes of footage was cut from the ritual scene? And if so, what did that contain? And then just generally, how long did that ritual scene take to shoot? Well, it was shot in various parts. When you say the ritual, are you talking about the mask, the mask ball, where they're around in the circle? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, but, so that was shot in one part of the country. And where, they got, where we're going through the house... And he's watching people, you know, watching couples and 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 Monange um, Trois, etc. That was shot at a different time in a different part of the country. That was shot somewhere out in Guildford, that place. But the mask ball was shot in in a in a house up in the north of England. I can't exactly remember the name of the, the place. So that that took us about um, that particular sequence. Took us. We shot that over a period of about three weeks. Now, one of the things that, that, that stands out in terms of the, the, uh, the sort of natural beauty of the film overall is this, this lovely contrast with the yellow tinge and the contrasting blue light that comes in through the windows. That, that I think, I mean, as far as my, I mean, this is just my, me watching it, it's like that, th those, those very sort of 
obvious lighting choices sort of they culminate in um in, in, in there's a moment towards the end where Tom Cruise's face is half lit blue, like he's wearing like a Phantom of the Opera mask, you know, obviously in keeping with the rest of the, the masks of the film. I'm, I'm assuming that's no accident that I'm, I'm seeing it like that, is it? No. I mean, basically, <clears throat> what happened was from the very, very first scene when I was pre-lighting uh, Bill's apartment, Tom Cruise and Nico's apartment, um, I was... Um, I was just experimenting, experimenting with the light coming through the window, the sort of night blue light. And, you know, uh, blue light, it tends to be not as blue as, uh, sorry, moonlight tends to be not as blue as people think it is. It tends to be a bit more neutral. It's, it's more like a white light. But the, but, but the perception of blue light, uh, of moonlight, sorry, is blue. You know, it's what we, you know, it's, it's how we see it. And so I... I put this, uh, I put this uh, full blue on a um, on a tungsten light, which you know it effectively makes it daylight. Um, and then I put a double full blue on, which made it very theatrical, because that's what really the lighting was. It was there was nothing natural about that. It was it was more theatrical, and in, in a way, not by accident. I had done this before, but but kind of by accident. For this particular scene, I just put and, and the same reason that that happened because we were using tungsten lights and they were very very hot. What happens with the blue? It starts to burn out, and so it loses its you know it, 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 its original uh, uh, blue, and it starts to go. For example, instead of being say for example five thousand six thousand kelvins, it might drop down to four thousand kelvins, which is more like a half blue. So halfway between tungsten and daylight, right? So what you do, just for speed, I you just put another blue over it. So what I'd actually done was, it was only because I was just testing looks, you know. So I put another blue over the original blue, which made it about one and a half blues. And then I might, I did, I think I did that again, and you get back to sort of back to a double blue. And Stanley saw it and he went, That's, I said, I, I said, don't worry about that. That's just because I've been. He said, yeah, but it's, it's an interesting look. I said, yeah, but it's. You know, it's theatrical, you know, and he went, yeah, but it's interesting. And Stanley used to have this saying where about, where he always used to say, is it real or is it interesting? You know, and it's a, it, and, and, and his theory was, forget real, it's interest, interesting is better, you know. So we, that's how that kind of developed, and we kept that look all the way through. Plus, with the force developing, it kind of changed it a little bit as well, you know. So you've got this really kind of, in a way, an odd look, I would say. The highlights are, are, are gorgeous, and then the, the blacks, the blacks in it are, are something else, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So that was basically how that came about. It was, it was partly by accident. Now, you know, if I if I fast forward to the staircase scene when they go to uh, um, the party, the first party that they're getting ready for, you know that curtain of light. Yeah that came down and that was something I was really strong about using but Stanley never thought that they would be strong enough and you know we wouldn't get enough stop and the focus it would affect the focus or, or whatever um, um, but ultimately in the end we just doubled up and trebled up to get the you know the, 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 the luminance that much greater but that was something he was really adamant against using you know and I think that was a, for me that's one of the nicest you know, visual looks of the film when he's coming down that staircase. Well, I mean, I mean, all of it really, in a way, because your you, your your base materials is where the rooms you're having to shoot in, 
they're, they're quite ordinary rooms, aren't they? I mean, we're, we're, yeah. in, in so much that we're used to seeing them. I mean, they're grand because they're big and stuff, but it, the light, the, the lighting and feel is what makes the film feel interesting, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's how you use the space and how you use the uh, the production design, you know, etc. You know, that, that whole collaboration is 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 really very very important, I think. Nicholas Winding Refn. Mm-hmm. Which you've done is is um, three films. I, I can see you've you've worked with him. Yeah, yeah, I did. Fear X was the first film I did with him, and Bronson, and then uh, Bronson, and then Only God Forgives. Yeah. Before before we go into it, I just I mean the fascinating thing that I always find when I listen to um, Nicholas talk about his work is, and I don't mean that he's talking to me. I just mean interviews and stuff. Is is his colour blindness? Where, how soon into the process of knowing him or working with him were you were you made aware of this and how how do you mitigate it in in your communication with him? He told me when we, when we first met. He said he said I'm absolutely colourblind. There's only one or two colours that I can can see. I said oh, really? You know I, I said, oh, okay. I didn't you know I didn't I took it on board. I didn't think about it too much. You know because you know when I did. Um, Fear X, that was his first movie, really. He'd done um, Pusher, uh, but he hadn't done anything to do. And, I, you know, he was a, an, a, you know, he was just a young um, director who clearly didn't um, have a real understanding of cameras and, um, and, um, and lighting to that, to that, to that extent. Yeah, you know, um, and I just, I, you know, I just went about my work like I do. I just, I just lit lit this set like that, and I lit this set like that, and that was it. I, there was no real discussion. There wasn't any discussion on Fear X at all, you know, because it was a short schedule and it was it was busy. So you know, um, but Fear X wasn't really a film where, <clears throat> you know, uh, where, where where his um, lack of uh, or, or his colour blindness would have um, would have impacted him too much. It was a fairly straightforward set. It wasn't a you know it wasn't a saturated film in any sense. Whereas Bronson was, and so was obviously um, Isaac Sharp. Only God forgives. Oh, sorry, uh, Only God forgives. It, the, the reds and the blues in Only God forgives are. It almost feels like the um, what's it? I don't know how you describe it. The kind of um, the neon kind of monk, demon monkey face that's above the ring is almost like the colour palette for the film. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it, it was. That was something that, that, that we put in to, to link that. Um, uh, again, it was, um, uh, in a way, something that came around by accident. The, the, but the actual boxing ring um, had um, very minimal lighting in it, but it was, it was red. They had a lot of... Um, you know, there was some red fluorescence and um, nowhere near enough. So um, what I did was I put a load more of these up as if they were naturally in the stadium and I just put red on them, uh, a double a double red on them. And then that be, kind of became the theme, you know, um, um, and then the face came out. I mean, Nicholas likes red anyway, but I just, I just um, it's one of the colours he does see, but, and I just used that as a theme and I thought, well, this is actually might as well be something that we might use, particularly in the boxing ring, and I just made more of it. <laughs> and every time we needed to introduce another light source, I introduced another, introduced another red light. Um, and, um, and then the, the back of that uh, um, boxing ring, which is where the, more or less the opening scene is, where there uh, is, and I forget what the opening scene is now. Do we start in the back? Um, you'll be able to tell me. You start, we start, we start to come out of the back room, don't we? Right. Okay. So that that back room literally was 
how it was. It was just, you know, those um, concrete um, things that you build walls with in gardens that have got shapes in them, you know, that you just buy from home base or one of these places. It was that, That's all it was. There was a few partitions of that that were already there and a couple of benches, you know, for the, 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 the boxes, the tie boxes to get chains in. There was no set there. And and so it was like, what do you do with this? You know, how can you light this? There's nothing. So I just used those shapes there, and there was the back wall, the exterior wall had a few of them coming from the top, and I, you know, used them. I, I used a sort of more of an amber light there, though. There was there was red in there as well, um, but I used more of an amber light. So you know, it, again, it was something that I used in those first two days because there was. You know, we're trying to just trying to give it some some atmosphere, trying to give it some shape because there was no shape there, you know. And I I tried to use you know light to give the back room some personality, and then literally, you know, because there was very little money for production design on the film, I kind of just took that theme around. So everywhere I went. Everywhere there was a boring set or no set, shall I say, I just used a very theatrical form of lighting, which was more or less what I did on Bronson as well. Again, there was a very, it was a very low budget film, and I just used, you know, interesting orifices to shine lights through. So when, so when, when, you, when we're looking at the, um, say, the shoot-up scene in the in the bar, where the assassins come and try and try and shoot the, I think it's the police, isn't it? So that is that is that on location or is that a set? That's location. No, that's location. That was an actual cafe. That was an actual bar. Because the serenity you've got that you've established in in what you frame and what you've lit makes you feel like it's a studio. Yeah, no, it's not. It was all just natural. Throw it together <laughs> as quickly as you can. Lighting, you know. Is it? Is it? Right? Am I right in thinking that you've said be on, on your own record? I said it's probably one of the toughest movies you've ever had to make yeah it, it was hard because it was eight weeks of nights um and then we we got and then we got into doing six days and then it was like 30 every night was never the temperature was never less than mid 30s sometimes up to 40 degrees um so it's very very tiring when you're just you're just only surviving existing in night uh, you know you become nocturnal you know as a person and and that's that's actually not very healthy i could say how do you not just stir crazy well you do and and i did i said that's why it was the hardest movie it, you know it, you know it, 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 at the end i was just you know i'd got quite sick on it i kept getting bad throats and all because of this whole you know this whole um Working at night, and also the, the the theme of the story, as you know, is quite can quite gruesome. You know, if you were working at night and doing something, you know, like for example, a musical, <laughs> you'd probably be it's more uplifting. So the subject matter didn't help. You know, I never thought about that before. But you you set in a scene. I mean, and like you say, some of the some of the moments are are extreme, aren't they? In terms, of, I mean, and, and Nicholas celebrated that when he was promoting the film. How, how does how does you how does your um your ideas shape when when you're when you're being asked to sort of light something so visceral as compared to just say you know here's some people in a room talking let's make it interesting but obviously when the focus is of something like I'm thinking of when the the, the person's getting stabbed in the chair and things like that where obviously all the focus for the audience is on them isn't it I think when you pick a location like the shootout for example um, it, you know if you know that part of the world it's 
you know, that it's, it, you get millions of fluorescent lights in all of the bars. It's just the most boring, they're the most boring places to sit and eat, that eat those street food restaurants, you know. And there's far too much light, you know. So the first thing you do when you go, how do you make this look interesting? You turn off 90% of them. And then you just cut down. Well, then what I did there was I just cut down, you know, for example, if they were four-foot fluorescents on the ceiling, I just used to, you know, black wrap them, tape them up, and just use six inches of it. So it, it was like a, you know, a, just a single source of light just to try and give it some shape. Otherwise, it's just boring and flat. And then, you know, and then use the exterior, link the exterior part of that with, you know, with a bit of street lighting and, you know, maybe... Pop, pop, pop a little light in somewhere if there was a dark space. And the rest of it, in a way, you know, with modern modern um, uh, cameras and modern, uh, wasn't film on that, it was digital. Um, you know, it, you know, if you manipulate, it, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's how you manipulate the images you're shooting to look the way that you think that they should look, to look interesting, to, to look pleasing to the eye. It arrested me watching... Um... Only got forgives for the first time. Because also you've got the other challenge, which is there's not a lot of talking going on, is there? So you're, this film is being judged on what you put through the camera, isn't it, in many senses? Uh, and, I, and, of course, um, uh, when I go back to what I was saying earlier on about having freedom to work, I just did on that film what, you know, what I wanted to do. I just tried to make it look as interesting as it could because I knew the whole narrative was very was very short and very small and um, you know and what would help carry the film and um, and, um, and and so I thought the light in might. It's interesting that you've worked you've worked with Kubrick and now you're working with someone that's sort of I guess in the in the media in the entertainment media is classed as sort of a young pretender to to Kubrick. Do you think that 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 comparison's fair on on Wind and Refn, Never mind. Is it, is it is it true? I don't think it is fair. I, I think they're, they're completely different um, animals. I mean, um, Stanley was very um, um, very pragmatic. Very, um, you know, the time he had to do. He, you know, he worked on his stuff for years. You know, whereas Nicholas has um, tends to work on very short low-budget films, you know, impact films, if you like, you know, and I don't think you have that kind of um, possibility of working. I know Nicholas lo loves a lot of the stuff that Stanley did and the way his compositions and things like that, but they're very, you, you know, they're very different, totally different people, the way they work, um, um, you know, and, the, and and I think obviously you know the, the results that they end up going for or getting. I guess I guess in a simple sense, and I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a writer, a screenwriter, not a not a technician in terms of how you shoot a movie. But from from a viewing point of view, it's that I think it's sometimes it's just simply that that regular use of say centre perspective, which I think obviously Kubrick did brilliantly. Um, in, in, in his films and I think Wyden Refn's fond of using it too and it and it, it, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a frame that's not always it's not always done well so when it is it kind of I guess it always comes back to Kubrick doesn't it I suppose yeah, I forget who said this it, uh, it might have been Steven Spielberg I can't remember but if somebody said the thing about Kubrick is that Kubrick copies nobody 
and he sets his own style. You know, because when Stanley goes off and doesn't make a movie for five years, yeah, he watches stuff. Of course, he watches everything. You know, from you know, he used to watch The Bill. You know, on TV. Can you believe no, it? I can't, you know, no, he should find it. He, he, you know, he watched everything. He watched. You you want to talk to him about sport? He knew everything about every sport. He was if there was a sport he was interested in, he talked. He, he was interested in cricket. You know, um, you know, he was a. He, he just used to watch everything, but he never. You know, you can't say he, he, whatever he was watching never influenced him because you never know. Subconscious in your subconscious, how how you get influence, but you know he wouldn't be thinking, oh, I read this Vogue book and I saw this beautiful model, therefore Nicole's going to be wearing this stuff because she was kind of, you know, some of the things Stanley said, oh, this dress will look good on you. She went, really, you know, it's really clearly not what she wanted to wear. But Stanley never worried about that. He didn't care about that. So he just made his own films the way he wanted. Fast forward to one of his movies coming out, everybody was looking what Stanley was doing and trying to copy. So it's quite it's quite an interesting dynamic, isn't it? You know, you've now picked up the director's baton, and you've made a film called Trafficker. So that's a, that's quite a long while down the road, given your experience. I mean, I counted what twenty feature films on your cinematographer, and that was an, and that's that's just a cinematographer. You know, that's not all the films you've worked on, and then countless adverts and stuff. Was director something that was always on the cards, or? Have you? Did you find a project that found you, as it were? Well, I, t- I, I used to direct um, for a, a, f- a few years a lot of television commercials. So, you know, I, I did go the directing route, but but uh, you know, uh, it was never you know I never wanted it to for it to be my day job. My day job, I'm a cinematographer. I enjoy it. You know, I'm comfortable doing it. You know, and. I don't get too phased about it, or very rarely anyway. Directing was always something that I was going to do if I got the right project. And I had an offer. I've had various offers over the years, and I was very close to, you know, doing a couple of movies, which in the end I pulled out of because they just weren't, they, you know, from what I read and what I set up and what I was prepping, they didn't end up being those kind of movies. So, therefore, I thought, well, I've got nothing to gain here and everything to lose. So, you know, I'm, I'm not and was never desperate to be a movie director. I just always wanted to do something if the right story came along. And I had this story that I developed called The Hot and Top Venus, which I was going to make. I like, okay, I, I like true stories. I like historical stories. Um, and so I had this story um, that I wanted to make, which I'd been working on and, and, and had more or less had the money to make. And then a, a French Tunisian director made a, made a story, not the same story, but about the same person. Um, and, um, and, and, and anyway, so I pulled the plug on that because it's crazy, you know, to do that. Uh, I might revisit that at some time because that film never got shown and it was made... In a, I've since seen the film and it was nothing like my film so you know, I'm, I am prepared to pick that up again so in the meantime I'd read a script called um, it wasn't called Trafficker then it was called 
something else I can't remember, by a writer that I'd worked with. I did a film in Malaysia called The Blue Mansion. And the writer on that was a writer called Ken Quack, and he said, I've got this film, would you like to read it, tell me what you think about it? And I read it, and it was a true story. And uh, I said, Ken, I think it's a great story. I said, um, he said, well, I've given it to to, uh, to Ken, to um, to Glenn Gooey, who, 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 who directed Blue Mansion, and um, to see if he wants to do it. I said, well, it's a great story. I think, you know, um, I said, I knew a little bit about the story, but I didn't realise it was quite as intricate as it was. Cut to me giving up on um, the hot and top Venus. I then speak to Ken and I said, Ken, what happened to you know your film? Um, and he said, Oh, Glenn's still got it. I said, well, Is he ever going to make it? I said, I think I might be able to get the money to make this. So he said, I'm going to ask him. And he, he, I said, Well, ask him now. I said, Ask him today. And he called Glenn up because they both live in Singapore. And um, Glenn said, no, I'm, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do anything with it. So he gave it back to the writer, and then I had an agreement with the writer. And um, I sort of, because I, I, I passionately believed in the story, you know, it's a, it's a story about capital punishment. And I don't make any views about capital punishment, but, you know, it, it was a story that ultimately is about capital punishment, but it's not about capital punishment. It's a story about two brothers who who leave Vietnam in the 80s with their family. They were three and five years of age, and their family are on their way to Malaysia and the horrific things that happened to them um, on the way. And I, and I just thought... Wow, this is just such a morally compelling story. And also, as as we now see with what's going on, very topical. So uh, I got the money, and um, it was a very low budget. I shot it in Thailand. I used um, Bangkok for Vietnam. Well, not Bangkok. I used parts of Thailand for Vietnam. Um, um, Australia, which is really where the film takes place. And, um, you know, I made it there. And... Um, Hopefully, you'll um, get a chance to see it um, soon. So, to answer your question, no, it wasn't a driving force. Uh, it's not necessarily something I may even do again. I've had a, an offer to do something else, um, and I may resurrect the hot and top Venus. Um, so, it, uh, you know, it's on stuff that's, you know, that's out there's on the back burner, and I, I could pick up at any time, you know. And it's called, it's called Trafficker, yeah? It's called Trafficker, yeah. And, and Nicholas Wenner Refn exec produced it, didn't he? No, they were. That was no. That was originally what was going to happen. But I, I think what happened was, uh, which was one of the reasons I ended up being a director producer in the end, um, was that they were so they, they they had so much work still to do to get um, only God forgives into can. They were trying to get it. They desperately wanted to get it into can and to try to sell it. And there was a lot of post-production they were doing. And in the end, it was easier for them, you know, not to do it. And so I took that role over, basically. But that was always going to be the case, yeah. Now, one last question, which is kind of a fundamental of where, I guess, cinema's moved from from when you started, is the, the old um, film versus HD digital. Um, and I asked that because I watched this, I watched a seminar you were, a panel you were on on uh, YouTube, and somebody asked the question there, and you said the positive was something like it, it gave access to more filmmakers to make film cheaply, to make a film cheaper, and then you went, but I can't think of anything else. So, so is that is that you set, without saying it? Is that you being firmly in the analog film camp? Yes. 
and the reason I say that is is because it's like the, you know the, the, the king's new new clothes. If enough enough people say it, enough people believe it, and and people jumped on board this whole digital thing when it was in its infancy, when it was terrible, it was awful. Uh, it's much 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 better now, and I'm not anti-digital by the way. I want, I want everybody to understand that. I think it's a, I think the Alexa camera is a wonderful camera, and it's something I would always carry given the budget. But I'd always have two film cameras as my main source of capture and, and an Alexa for doing other stuff. It's a tool that we should be using and it's fantastic. And it's getting much closer to film, but it ain't film. And the end result does not look like film. And so, therefore, people got on this bandwagon about how it was cheaper and how it was better. Both of those statements are lies. You can still shoot on film cheaper than you can shoot on digital. And Kodak have got a rollout system where you can get two film cameras, you can get uh, a post-production deal, you can get a, develop, a developing deal in terms of getting your stock developed on a, on a day-to-day basis on a very good budget. And a film camera now, they give them to you to use because digital cameras are very expensive to rent. You know, so it's, you know, it's, I hate it when these things happen based on anything but the truth. And, you know, the reality is that the look of film is still much more forgiving and a better look, a better end result, in my opinion, than digital. Is, is that something about the film does that as, as a part of its process, whereas digital, yes. you manipulate it after the fact, as it were? Yes, exactly that. And there's the thing. I th- I'm going to uh, say something now that will probably offend a lot of um, cinematographers that shoot only on digital. What's happened to the cinematographer in the modern era is become semi-skilled. It's not skilled like it was in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s where exposure was really important and balance and where cinematographers knew there are. It's all so post-production based now that, you know, you can take a badly shot film and you can make it into a more interesting film in post-production, whereas that should all be captured in camera. But you see, that, that sounds like a, there's a similar... It's not, it's not, not as rudimentary as you were saying, but I've heard people who were taught to shoot on film full stop um, are more organised and know what they want to achieve. Whereas there's a, there's, a, there's a habit now that's snuck into film digital, which is this idea that we shoot and shoot and shoot, and hopefully we have what we need in the camera. Mm. And that's it. That's exactly how directors use the digital uh, format now. Um, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. Shooting on digital as a, as a cinematographer makes your life so much easier. On the one hand. Because there's so many things you don't, you just don't have to worry about, you know. Where it makes your life far more difficult is that everybody's got an opinion of what they're seeing on a screen. So you've got all the monitors around the set, and nobody's ever watching the right monitor. They all watch the, the video playback monitors, which don't, you know, if you're shooting in low light levels, don't read it very well. They say, oh, it's too dark. It's this, it's that. Nobody's watching the DIT monitor, which is really where the heart and soul of capturing digital you know, goes where you know what you're getting. So you get all these people that have got, an, got a view, got an idea. So all the producers now, wanted to, you know, whereas before, uh, you know, with film, they didn't know what they were getting to the next day. 
And sometimes the next day, even for cinematographers that knew their way around film, it was you had some wonderful experience because you got stuff that were even better than you would imagine you can get. Sometimes you've got stuff that wasn't <laughs> as good. But that's the magic that's the magic of it, you know, but but you know, that's been taken away now. Everybody wants, you know, to know what they're getting. Now, people say this to me now, it goes back to a Kubrick now. People say say, well, for sure, you know, Stanley was so, you know, he embraced technology. He did embrace technology if it worked in the way he wanted to shoot. And people now have got this opinion that he'd have definitely shot on digital. I can tell you now, in my opinion, 100%, if he was making a movie tomorrow, he would test digital better than anyone's ever tested it before in every shape or form. And his conclusion would be, yeah, it's good, it's interesting, but it's not film. I feel I can't go any I can't go anywhere else with that, and I'd love I'd love to end there. I, I can't thank you enough for uh, lending your time to the British podcast and telling us these wonderful stories about your experiences. Okay, well it's a pleasure, and I hope, I hope your uh, your listeners enjoy it. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. Alan Parker said, "Sometimes with the British film industry." It's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.